0: Welcome to the Fitness FAQ's podcast, where we use calisthenics to gain body weight strength, build muscle to look like a bodybuilder, and unlock the mobility to move freely. It's not every day that you have the opportunity to speak to someone that has world-class strength in calisthenics, and I don't use that term lightly. Matthew is literally one of the best in the world at straight lifting and weighted calisthenics. Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast,
1: brother. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. And I'm really glad to be on this podcast.
0: Awesome, man. Now, an introduction like that, some people might be thinking, is Daniel just being nice? What What is the real extent of Matthew's strength? So I just want to get straight into it with your personal best that you've achieved. Can you please let us know?
1: Yeah, of course. I'm a weighted calisthenics specialist, a street lifter. With the competitive history. My best gym lifts or all time PRs are pull up, pronated grip with 125 kilos, weighted dip with 195 kilos, and the chin up with 120 kilos with some reserve. My best competition stats are up to date a pull up with 120 kilos, chin over the bar. Uh, weighted dip with like below 90 degrees depth and with a pause like under command, with 175 kilos and a top-locked chin-up with 107.5 kilos. That goes to the haters that think that I can't close my wraps and pull-ups because I absolutely can and I have proven that in competition.
0: Awesome. The stats don't lie. The proof is there as well, Matt, with the videos of all this stuff you're not just talking about it you're actually living it that's why i'm extremely excited to to chat and just pick your brain today because it's going to be very very useful for people listening to see to see the truth of what it takes to get absolutely incredibly strong now of course with those feats of strength that didn't happen overnight what was your journey from when you first started and i'd love to hear your story
1: Well, it actually took quite a lot of time and definitely a lot of work. I started training as early as like 12 years old. It all started in the morning when I tried to do push-ups and didn't do as much as I wanted to. So I guess that was the beginning of my never-ending quest for gaining strength. Like a year, like for a year, it was only push-ups. Then my parents signed me up for, for coaching in a local gym. It lasted for about seven months. I did like normal gym training, like squats, deadlifts, bench press, bicep curls. It was like a normal bodybuilding routine, like a classic bro split, if you want to say that. And already at that time, I was quite strong for my age. At age 13, I benched 105 kilos and 80 kilos for eight reps on my best day. 105, it wasn't maxed out. I could do more, but my coach, didn't allow me to do that because I was like from his words a little too young to be lifting such weights so we will never know what I could have lifted that day but I was already like showing something but then I had uh, like a half a year break from training because I had some uh not a teenage, maybe teenage or early age hypertension. So I had a little bit high blood tension and I had to like stop training for a while. And during that time, I picked up calisthenics, like got to meet some local guys. And due to having a great strength base from gym training, I learned one arm pull-ups in no time. It was actually my first skill to learn. I could one arm pull-up before I even could muscle up. I think that's quite a rare thing actually.
0: For sure, that's very rare.
1: Well, then I learned to muscle up. And uh, kind of when you are like 14 years old, and you can one arm pull up, it's very easy to make friends on bars, like who train as well. And kind of like, from that, it all started. In 2015, when I was still 14 years old, I tried weighted calisthenics. And like, at that point in time, it just clicked. It was something that I really felt in love with, and since then, since then I really just haven't stopped training weighted calisthenics, and every single of my workouts always included some type of pull-up, dip, one-arm pull-up, or whatever. And since then, I like started training systematically also. So I guess my streetlifting lifting career started in 2015 when I was 14 years old. And up until now, it's been like what six years?
0: Could you define what street lifting is for people that don't know?
1: Street lifting is like a competitive sport based on weighted weighted calisthenics. It has like two different vari- variations to it: the European one, which is promoted by like athletes who like hybrid approach. It's like also called the four lift street lifting. It features the muscle up, the pull up dip combo and the squat and the classic street lifting which like is a little bit older than that and it's called classic for a reason it's features just it features just pull ups and dips weighted for one rep max there is also a multi-lift variation of street lifting which includes like strength endurance it's usually maximum reps of pull-ups and dips with a fixed weight like 32 kilos for pulls and 40 kilos for dips. So to sum it up street lifting is a competitive variation of weighted calisthenics.
0: And is street lifting mainly in Europe?
1: Well, I haven't seen this in America or Australia at all. <clears throat> in Asia it happens sometimes like I know there is a Japanese National League of Street Lifting. In Korea some people tag me on their lifts, but in America there hasn't been a single competition up to date. Same goes for Australia.
0: Yeah, right. They tend to be more interested in, say, the sets and reps, I take it, in, in America, because they pioneered that.
1: Trying to use calisthenics for bodybuilding purposes, it's also really popular there too.
0: Now, with, with weighted calisthenics, when would you say people are ready for it?
1: When they have their body weight like, under control. And that really means different things for different people. For example, I usually set the standard. Where when you can start weighted at around 12 pull-ups with clean form and around 15 or 20 dips. But it's really personal. And for example, when I'm coaching my girlfriend, we started adding weights to her pull-ups as soon as she hit five reps. But these weights are like one kilo, two kilos. So small steps, small steps matter. If you want to add like weight comfortably, to be sure that you are ready, to be sure that you will progress in small steps, but you will. Then I'd recommend these stats, like 12 clean, proper pull-ups that you actually can control. And around 15 dips. These are my numbers. Mastering the body control, mastering the movement pattern so that it doesn't break down when you actually add weight. This is what matters.
0: Perfect. And as someone with many years of experience now, Matt, What would you recommend would be a good beginner weighted calisthenics routine that someone could follow and make consistent progress with?
1: Well, I have one on my YouTube channel. It has like 50,000 views already. For me, it's a lot because I'm not like a professional YouTuber and, uh, the progression there is a bit outdated, but it still may work. And in the comments, there are a lot of success stories. So I guess check out my YouTube channel for uh, routine. To sum it up, it's a linear progression model with adaptive progression. So it, it's based on like a rep scheme you do. So for example, you start out with four sets of eight reps. And uh, for the number of reps you do, there is a certain increment. So if your hardest set out of all these four is eight reps, you add, like, five kilos. If you, like, you do your next session and your hardest set, like, drop down to seven reps because five kilos to add is a lot. If you can do seven reps in your hardest set out of all four, you add 2.5 kilos. If your hardest set is six reps, six reps you add one, 1.25 kilos, and so on, down to, like, 0.5 kilo increments. So this is really this... Flexible progression model is one of my favorites.
0: Matt's YouTube channel specifically to that video, for those of you that are interested in that beginner routine. So if it's simple and it's effective, I'm sure it's going to be very helpful for you guys. Could you just outline some strength standards in terms of beginner, intermediate, and advanced level?
1: Novice or beginner is someone who can PR almost every session. An intermediate, like an early intermediate can PR every week or so, and more like a more advanced intermediate can PR like monthly, like when you can set PRs like every couple of months or like every preparation, then you can consider yourself advanced.
0: I think a lot of people get caught up in the pure numbers, but as you said, it's all relative to their height, their their weights, their training history, but more importantly, the rate of progress. If you think that you're lifting heavy numbers and you're progressing every single session, then you're probably a beginner, as you said. But then it slows down over time, which makes sense. Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. How do you decide what comes first? and? over the course of the workout? How do you order the exercises?
1: Well, as a person who promotes full-body workouts, the order of exercises is a really important question. And I have my own approach to this. Like, uh, the first thing that you do in your workout must be either really important to you, like your main number one priority, or it has to be like a kind of exercise, exercise that requires you to be fresh and your nervous system to be like fireball so to say. Uh, I train my chin ups first because that is like the m- pattern that they use in competition. So in competition you have to do chin ups first and then you go to dips. So I want to be as prepared as possible so I guess this the best pattern that you can do is specific. So I try to be specific and Every session I consider like a preparation, like a repetition before competition. So that is my approach. I do it specifically. To sum up, for people who don't have the specificity, who are not preparing for a competition, my pattern would be like this. First, some explosive stuff for low reps, some high intensity, skills maybe, attempts, one-arm pull-ups, muscle-ups, the things that require you to be fresh. Second order is basics, because basics are important, and basics are taxing. Taxing exercises should be done first, because they require you to be at your best. And the third order of importance is assistance, if you do that at all, because I don't do assistance. But if you do, then it's like towards the end of your workout, because it's not that important.
0: That's a great answer, Matt. I think that framework is going to serve everyone perfectly regardless of their specific goals. They just have to change it based on what they want to achieve most, putting it at the start, but then applying your framework of that order of explosive, the high complexity of coordination and speed, followed by having those basic movements and then the, the weakling stuff, your accessories, et cetera. I think that's... An awesome answer you're an absolute savage i'm just going to say it at the dip so i really want to get your unfiltered thoughts on dipping technique for maximum performance
1: yeah sure because dips are actually the most technical lift in strict lifting and i you like usually i see people in the gym and even coaches teaching dips completely wrong And these techniques that they're coaching is just, it hurts my eyes. Like I can't see it. Even yesterday I saw somebody coaching people dips and it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible for, I guess, for street lifting, but even for building muscle too. So the street lifting dip, I love it so much. Let's start from the beginning. So in the support, you need to be tense, like on the straight arms, like you need to lock out your arms. Uh, depress your scapula, push against gravity so that your chest, keep your chest a bit hollow. Like this is where the controversy starts because a lot of people advise to do dips with the retracted scapula. And uh, I don't because I prefer to have my chest closed. Why? Because retracted scapula or open chest, it puts a lot of stretch on your chest and shoulders. And that's what we want to avoid when we dip heavy weight because stretch under heavy weight invites injury. So our chest needs to be a little bit like closed and abs tight, legs preferably straight. Or if you're bending your legs, never cross them because crossing legs like it invites disbalances and your position will be asymmetrical. Don't do that. Your position needs to be perfectly symmetrical, tight, closed so you are in full control of the movement. If you are dipping with additional weight, then always keep the weight controlled with your legs, always. The main mistake I see with weighted dips is that that people let go of the weights and let them hang free, just never do that. Because if you have like your center of mass in the dip, moving around as the plates hang, you cannot be talking about good results and a controlled dip. It's just not happening if you are not in control of the weight. Because usually if you're dipping heavy, if you're dipping more than your body weight, then the center of mass in your dip will be where the plates are. So, And if the plates are moving around, then how can we even talk about a stable dip? It's just not happening.
0: That's perfect, yeah. And what range of motion of the shoulder are you looking for the the shoulder hit 90 degrees or slightly below. What's, What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, that's the second part of the dip, the descent. On the descent, we need to keep the body position like the same as in support, as in closed chest, straight legs, controlled weights. And we need to go down. To, like Yes, to 90 degrees, but different federations and different people judge 90 degrees differ- differently. So the universal standard, the most accepted one, is the rear delt. The upper part of the real de- rear delt is below the elbow. So in terms of like bone composition, it will be a little bit lower than 90 degrees, but I guess that it's okay because it's still the safe range of motion. Like, it's not like down to the deep bars with your shoulders. It's just rear delt in that on level or below your elbow. And then comes the third part, or the concentric, or the like push, the actual dip. And here, you want to let go of your closed chest a little and go to neutral. Let go of the tension in your abs, so like a little bit extend, like a little bit of extension is happening. Like some Russian people say that this is cheating, and you cannot extend during the dip. Like you have to dip with your straight body, and I'm usually against that because what this like closed to open position gives you, it gives you protection during the descent and then during the ninety degree phase. And still, it's not forbidden in the rules, even if you consider that this cheating. Well, by the rules, it's not. You can do that in competitions, so it will count. As long as your plates actually move, don't stay in one place. You can be open or closed or whatever you want. So extend a little bit from the bottom, push really hard, and uh, push with your shoulders a little, bit back, a little bit back as well because when you're closed, it means that your shoulders are a bit forward. So you have to compensate that on the concentric. And uh, arrive in support. And that's the finish of your dip. The main thing about dips is control. If you don't have control, you don't have a dip. That is, is as simple as that. And all these closed chest, closed up, straight legs, it's all for gaining control. It's not for cheating. It's not for like aesthetic purposes, although a closed dip, in my opinion, looks better. It's all for having control over your rep. And if you don't have control, you will you will never close that trap, believe me.
0: So when you're doing dips, Matt, are you mainly focused on controlling and then everything else somewhat takes care of itself? Because you've mentioned a handful of things. Of course, when you're actually training and actually performing, you can't focus on so many details at once. What what are you mentally visualizing?
1: I'm mentally visualizing the following sequence, like... In the support and on the way down, control, 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 control. And when you reach 90 degrees, explode up. Explode up as hard as you can until you arrive in support. And that works.
0: Perfect. It's simple, it's basic, but it takes years to refine that motor pattern correctly as you have. And you've mentioned so many good points there that are going to help people to improve their dip in terms of stabilizing the weights, et cetera, et cetera. How important is breathing during the dip?
1: Breathing, well, I found that like breathing with the with, well maneuver like people do on the squat, it doesn't really work for me on dips. And usually when I even think about breathing during the dips, I find my performance declining a little because it, like, it brings my concentration off. So I guess don't really think about breathing. Like find what works for you because like tensioning like in the squat for me doesn't work. And even if I do like long pause dips, like you probably have seen them on on Instagram, like I do three count pause dips. It's probably a little bit too long to hold your breath during this whole pause. So I guess I'm breathing freely during this and it doesn't set me off. Also, the really one thing that I always notice myself doing is before the dip, I breathe out. I like to feel empty when I go down. Probably sounds strange, but when you breathe out, you can really tense your abs much better, tense your core much better. Like even if you try to do that right now, you will feel, you will feel like tension in your core. So breathing out makes me more tight during the dip.
0: You've got a particular setup with your dip belt. Can you explain that longer anchor point that you've got and the value of that?
1: Well, my dip setup is really one of a kind, probably, and. I probably was the first one to do that. And then I see a lot of people following my, like, setup. So I guess that really is a good thing to talk about. So I put my plates really low in my dips. So, like, I can hold the plates not with my calves or with my thighs, but with my shins, like with the feet. What that does is that it brings the center of mass really, really, really low. And that makes me stable because when your center of mass is low, you are stable. You don't swing around. It stabilizes you. It grounds you, so to say. And when you dip, you'll feel it, especially with a heavy weight. I want to say another thing is that I, instead of the chain on the belt, I use a rope because rope is lighter, it's tighter, and it doesn't tear clothing because every street lifter, every person who has ever done weighted calisthenics in their life, they know that chains tear through clothing. Like I had a whole collection of t-shirts, like torn away by chains. When I started using ropes, it went away.
0: And of course, everyone that's done weighted cali knows that when the clip gets onto your skin, you get those like weird irritation, bruise marks, which are just really awkward.
1: When you find the optimal length of the rope, optimal height of the place, it stops happening. So I guess my advice would be to find a good setup that works for you.
0: Now, another specialty that you have, Matt, is the chin-up. And I've been studying your recommendations over the past year or so with how you've been improving your weighted chins and the specifics of the technique you've used have actually helped me quite significantly. Could you please share your thoughts on optimizing chin-ups in terms of weight-lifted?
1: Well, that's actually great to hear that I have helped you. I'm glad to be of help. That's the first thing I want to clarify. And the second second thing is that uh, I consider pull-ups and chin-ups not really technical lifts because it's usually about brute strength. Like in the dip, if you mess up, you can have the strength to finish a rep, but you can mess up your technique and fail a rep. In chin-ups and pull-ups, it doesn't, doesn't usually happen. If you have the strength, you can close the rep. At least that what, that's what works for me. If like you have the strength, but you catch like, like you start swinging around, yeah, you can fail a rep, but I guess that happens quite rarely and with quite inexperienced people. So my advice first would be, of course, to stabilize yourself in the hang before pulling up and then just pull with all your strength and pull until you're... Either like touching the bar physically with your chin or neck. Neck is better because you like can pull higher. Or if you are practicing locked chin ups until you pull, like and your chin is horizontally over the bar as well, and you can hold the lock. Like for me, locking is incredibly difficult. Like I know some people that their locked one rep max is the same as their normal one rep max. So Like they don't have this differentiation between locked chin-ups and normal chin-ups because locking chin-ups on the top is like natural for them. And I think you are one of these people. Am I right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. So for the people that don't know, that means the difference between just pulling until your chin clears the bar versus actually pausing afterwards is the lock version.
1: Yes. And for me, the difference is quite big. I can pull without a lock, like 20 kilos more. And I absolutely don't have the strength at the, end, at the end range of motion. So what I do, what I started doing to compensate for that, is I pull explosively without even trying to hold on with my muscular strength until my chin is over the bar like this, and then I just close with the chin. So it's, I guess it's a, it can be called a neck workout, but it works for me, and it counts on competition. And if you do that enough, you will have... Like neck a neck like this. I my neck circumference is over fifty centimeters.
0: For those of you that are only listening, you didn't see what Matt just did. He's um he's just showing his neck girth on camera right now. And it's um it's actually making me very intimidated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so people always ask me like, How do you train the neck? Do you train the neck? And I always answer, no, it's just pull-ups and dips. After a huge volume workout of lock chin-ups, I really remember my neck being sore as hell. <laughs> It I happens. think
0: I've seen a few videos of you having to cover cover the chin as well because it's been too too intense.
1: Oh, yes. It's not covering. It's choking up. It, ha- it Like, it helps. It helps a lot because, as I said already, I don't have the range of motion strength, so I have to choke up my chin to hold on to the bar for my dear life.
0: I, I think you need a respectable level of weighted calisthenics to walk around the gym with a chalk neck, though, just saying... <laughs> Have to do bodyweight chin-ups and have a chalk neck.
1: Well, I moved to a different gym like two weeks ago, and people like when I chalk my neck, they look at me like I'm some sort of freak or an idiot or whatever. Like they have these strange gazes at me and then like doing my
0: how do you find the grip width that you're strongest with?
1: Well, for pull-ups, it's just like natural for me to grip around. little bit wider than shoulder width like one and a half times shoulder width or like 1.4 times and for chin-ups it's really like unintuitive for me but i grip around the same width as pull-ups because for most people to like be comfortable during chin-up they grip a little bit like around shoulder width or a bit more narrow and uh, for me it doesn't really work because uh, my arms get in the way so what i like i found a workaround for that what i have to do is i have to grip a little bit wider
0: that was the tip matt that i when i was studying your weighted chins i applied that to one of my sessions and it was just night and day in terms of locking out taking a wider grip on chins so much better compared to a shoulder width grip for anyone that's got a respectable size bicep i think is going to find your, your advice very valuable
1: Yes, but it doesn't work for everyone and like for untrained people and for females, more narrow grip usually works better because they can lock with the wrist touching the chest. And my girlfriend does the same technique as well. Her grip is a little bit more narrow and I won't advise her to do a wider grip because that just doesn't work for people with smaller arms. These are the options, a more narrow grip if you have like smaller arms and if you have big developed forearms and biceps then wider grip might be better for you
0: in terms of technique for pulling or chinning i notice people tend to do two different styles generally speaking they either pause at the bottom between each rep or you see people that are doing more of that ballistic dynamic style of repetition what do you recommend for strength development what are the pros and cons of each
1: well, there are two techniques. I call them for like for short non-stop and dead stop. I guess you know what each one means. And this is our terminology, and I'll use it from now on. So, dead stops are really great for improving the technique of each individual repetition, and also I find dead stops much more comfortable for locked work because between each rep you can reset your position in a dead stop. and if you are non-stopping your reps i usually find myself like troubled at the top position because when you do non-stops you usually accumulate a little bit of swinging between between reps so your reps are not like perfectly like each other so if you are doing locked or if you want to practice like perfect form, if you're doing your technical workout, light workout, then dead stops are usually the way to go. Non-stops though, are usually better for like having actually more reps in the set. Like you can like do more reps because your work time, time and tension is a little bit more. Not even a little bit. It's actually much shorter than dead stops. And also non-stops, work better for peak force peak force output because like if you do a double or a triple nonstop the force output will be greater than that stops when you, where you have to pause your force output between reps and if you're doing a double or a triple nonstop then you can like do it as a single outburst and it really works well for increasing your one rep max but it usually requires your double or a triple to be with a sufficient reserve or are like lower RP, like at least eight or nine, not ten, because if you go RP ten on a triple, you will have probably have to do like two reps nonstop and then one dead stop. So to sum it up, dead stops work for locked stuff and for technique refinement, and nonstops work for high reps and big force output production.
0: Great response, spoken like a true master of his craft. I love it because I think the biggest thing that I hear from what you said was. The consistency and repeatability of stopping between reps probably has greater use on a more consistent basis because you know what you're doing. You can track it consistently in your training and you can know legitimately if you're progressing or not.
1: Actually, there is a third third ground. Usually I use the third ground as well. It's combining non-stop and dead stop during a single set. So I guess that is best explained using a set of five. So my my go-to technique for a set of five on pull-ups would be three reps non-stop, a little bit rest in the desktop position, and then two reps dead stop. This allows you to do your set of five the easiest. You save a lot of energy on the non-stop, but if you go further than three reps, you will start to accumulate swing, start to accumulate swing and lose your strength, actually. So... Usually split your sets like 60%, 60-70% non-stop and then re- the remaining part dead stop. It usually works best for high RPE sets, like RPE 10 is usually done this way.
0: That's a great advanced training technique that people can use to, to apply instead of just trying to consistently do non-stop reps. I think... Anyone that gets to a respectable level will do that just naturally, anyway, won't they?
1: Because people do it in their training unconsciously. Like if you see some training footage of different people, you will find that they usually do non-stop until they tar- tire out a little, and then they have to rest a little bit in the desktop position and finish their set with dead stops.
0: Now you mentioned earlier, Matt, that you don't personally use accessory exercises. Can you elaborate why that's why that's the case?
1: Uh, because my position is as follows. I'm minimalistic about my training. To progress maximally, to get maximum results, you have to do what works and you have to not do what doesn't. So for me, this approach meant that I like practice only the exercises I want to improve and anything else needs to go. This is my approach and that's why I don't do assistance because like the volume, like the recovery capacity that I that can be used for assistance also can be used to recover better between sessions of pure pull-ups and dips and get better results. This works great for me. I know some people who benefit from assistance a lot, so I don't call it a universal approach. You can use assistance, of course, just for some people, And in some cases, it makes total sense to let go of your assistance and just practice the movement. And also, I find it's like these priorities with assistance a little bit changing as the athlete gets more advanced because I find usually usually intermediates need the most amount of assistance because novices can just progress from session to session without needing any assistance at all. And advanced athletes need to usually refine their movement patterns to perfection and accumulate a lot of training volume, and this is usually done with a lot of quite low RPE training with basics. So I guess intermediates usually use the most amount, like the biggest amount of assistance. I myself have really progressed to my level without using any direct assistance for my lifts. Yes, I have done some other exercises like one arm pull-ups, like front lever training, like handstand push-ups, but I never expected any carryover from these things to my basics. My basics were like basic training and I have basic goals. And these other like skill, like skill work, I do skill work for skills, not for like having carryover to basics. So make your training self-sufficient. That would be my advice.
0: That is absolutely awesome advice. And I just wish that people that were more intermediate to advanced would really respect what you're saying because it's going to save them so much time and frustration from what I'd say would be spinning their wheels. Because as you said, the simple approach isn't easy. It's, it's difficult to actually follow and apply it, but it's effective because of the level that you're at. So you're getting more of an intermediate to advanced level, which means the training that you actually do is more fatiguing. So what do people do when yeah. they get intermediate to advanced? They're trying to improve their basics. Like you just said, your, your dip, your chin up as an example, and then they're not progressing and they think that their training isn't working they add more exercises being accessories but as you correctly said this isn't always the best approach because you're building up more fatigue and the best way to recover from that is to be very selective with what you're doing and perhaps a bit more patient right
1: yes of course you have to be patient like because improvement especially on advanced levels takes a lot of time usually people like add a lot of assistance and they expect all oh, like I did assistance and this will have an effect like on like the next week of my training when I recover from this muscle soreness that I got from my new assistance exercises. And then when they get to their new week, they just find themselves more fatigued and not stronger at all.
0: Yeah, exactly, man. And I think that if people want to follow your advice, this is excellent for strength gain. Matt's main goal is to get as strong as freakishly possible, but the people that are say, just wanting to build more muscle, there might be value in doing those accessories in that case. But
1: well, there is a, like a quote. I want to quote Mark Ripito and his book, Practical Programming for Strength Training, third edition. In there, he has said like a wonderful thing. So you don't progress by adding exercises. You progress in a lift by managing the lift.
0: Awesome. Which leads me on to my next question. What do you think about isolation exercises? Say someone's like, oh, Matt, I can't improve the lockout of my dip. Should I do triceps? Well, I can't improve the lockout of my chin-up. Should I do bicep exercises? What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, for some people, it can work. Like It can work, but you shouldn't put much priority onto it. As I said already, like assistance exercises are like a third order of importance. So don't really put a lot of hope into that. And f- usually for us, such things as lockout on the chin-up or lockout on the dip, usually it really just helps to improve your working sets and focus on that weak point you have in your working sets. Adjust your technique, lower the weight, and try to like work through the weak, mo- like, the weak part of the motion. And it works wonders because I used to have like a very weak lockout on the dip compared to my full range of motion. Like From the bottom, I was strong. In the middle, I was strong. But the lockout, it just always killed me. And I started implement, implementing more dead-stop dips, top post dips, locking my working sets a lot, and it helped. And now I can push through the lockout much better without ever doing isolation for the, tri- for the triceps. My English is a bit rusty, isn't it?
0: No, man, your English is absolutely excellent, especially when you're explaining complex scientific topics and some biomechanics. You honestly are explaining exercise better than most English-speaking personal trainers I see. So
1: oh, I know you're oh, just being
0: humble, you. Dar, You're all good.
1: But for pull-ups, some partials may help. And I call them training form pull-ups, like pulling up only when your chin, like up to your chin, touching the bar. And this has one big benefit. It teaches you to explode with an enormous weight that you cannot pull clean form. Of course, the usability of training form is a bit limited compared to normal form. You have to include include it more rarely, not as often, but it can really break through plateaus, I guarantee.
0: That's an excellent way to introduce some novelty and some different training stimulus without completely making it different. So what Matt was just saying with the the different form, the, the training form. You're not going to get the exact range of motion you are with a competition-style form, but you're still doing the same movement. You're still improving the dip. You're still improving the pull-up. You're not just randomly substituting it for, well, oh, I feel like doing a handstand push-up now or I just feel like doing a, a row. That's smart variety. That's still going to serve your training, and that's that's the reason why you've got world-class strength, man, because you've committed to what you want to improve and you, you're not playing games. And that's that's a great way to continue getting stronger but still keep it specific.
1: Yes, of course. And with the training form, it's always the most important thing to know why you're doing this. So you have to have a goal in mind. And if you don't have a goal in mind, then you just feel like, oh, I'm going to do some shit, shit form pull-ups today. Like It doesn't work.
0: How do you go about incorporating pause reps into your training? Do you just include that during regular reps or do you have a specific training block where you're like okay i'm going to be incorporating a pause in these movements
1: well there are two types of ways i usually incorporate post works the first way is into warming up for example like the last time i did dips it was 165 for two sets of two and before that i can do like 145 two sets of two but paused and this like it serves two purposes. First, it warms you up very well because post-like reps, post-like reps, they feature longer time and attention and they stabilize your positioning because you are strengthening your weakest point in your range of motion. And the second benefit is that you are actually including pause work in your training. So two purposes solved. And the second way I include my pause work is with separate sen- sessions in the microcycle. So I get, I guess I can have an overload week with four sessions, and two of them will be just heavy stuff without pausing. And two of the sessions will be like medium to light, but paused. And this is, I think, the best way to include pause reps, like to sep- like to have separate sessions for them. When, where you focus only on POSI.
0: Great. So for those of you that don't know what Matt means by a microcycle, that's just a very short phase within the, the training block that you're doing?
1: Usually, I mean, a microcycle is one week of training, how you organize it. Like a period of three to four weeks in my book is a mesocycle so, or a training block. A microcycle is one week. This is how I use it.
0: What mistakes do you see people make during warm-ups, Matt?
1: there are two types of warm-ups which can be detrimental for your performance. The first one is not warming up at all. And the second one is warming up too much. Like you have to find the middle ground. The truth is, is usually somewhere in the middle and the same goes for warmups. Not warming up at all is a stupid thing to do. Of course, we all know that. And this is how Vitaly Fischuk got his chest torn because he didn't have time for warming up before a competition. And he had to like immediately, immediately go into heavy weights and uh, got injured. So never do that. But the second type of people that warm up too much, it's not as dangerous, but it's definitely not optimal.
0: It's like, are you training or when does it, it blurs the lines of a warm up and training?
1: Like you see people doing like Foam rolling before training, like for twenty minutes, then a million of isolation exercises, then a million of ramp up sets, like with a, with five kilo steps, and only then doing their work sets. It's crazy. And also, I like I see a lot of people warming up before weighted with crazy weighted supersets, like ten muscle ups or doing a five minute drill from barbarians before training. And usually they're just pumped like hell and have no glycogen in their system. They are completely worn out before the working sets and then the working sets feel like shit. And also one way to warm up that a lot of people count as really scientific and really advanced, but I dislike it, is basically working up to, extremely, to an extremely heavy single leg, like 90% plus, and then doing your working sets as backoffs. It's called PAP. I don't remember that.
0: Post-activation potentiation.
1: Yes, I don't like it at all because in books about Russian weightlifting and I I really look up to one person. His name is Dmitry Golovinsky and he is a strength specialist. He has a 305 kilo bench press and he's a great strength training methodist. And I took a lot from him actually. He coached me for some time. And one of his principles was that you cannot lower the working weight during the session. And this is exactly what you do with post activation potentiation. So you work up to a heavy weight and then drop the weight down to your working sets. Usually how I would approach a top single in my workouts, I would do all of my working sets. And then after that, I would hit I would hit a single. It will be a little bit lighter, but the structure of the training will remain the same. So going from lightweights to heavier ones. And it's like it's extremely logical when you think about it because it simulates your warm up for a one rep max. So I don't like post activation potentiation. This is Dur- my point.
0: I like that response. During your working sets and the rest periods between sets, how long do you recommend resting? Because I think that this is an area that people tend to not be sure about.
1: Yes, I get a lot of questions on this topic, and my approach is as follows rest enough to recover that's it usually for me it's around from six minutes for lighter sets to up to 10 to 12 minutes for heavy sets especially of higher reps because I find that before like between singles I don't have to rest as much because they're not as taxing as like as more rep sets because like a single even if it's a heavy one doesn't really use much of the glycogen find what works for you usually for me it's around six to eight minutes for heavy extremely heavy singles around four minutes for lighter lighter singles and around 10 to 12 minutes for heavy sets of five to six reps i'm talking about strength now for strength never rest less than four minutes because you have to be ready to give your best every single set even even if it's light because strength training must be explosive You have to recruit as much muscle fibers and as much your nervous system as you can. So rest well, recover, and give your best every single set. And if you cannot give your best every single set, then you are not resting enough.
0: But I see so many people, even less than three minutes, and it's just not enough time to restore the energy system required for strength output. And that's if people just rested longer, they'd get stronger
1: you see there is also this problem that not a lot of people have the time to actually rest up to 10 minutes between all of all of their sets eliminating assistance also does wonders with this with shortening your workout so i guess if you put everything together it may work
0: do you think it's possible to be good at both skills and also straight lifting
1: yes Def- it definitely can be possible but you will have to do it like in periods. So like a period of focus on lifting, a period of focusing on skills. Like combining two, two huge different priorities in one training period is usually suboptimal. And I, as far as I know, Fishuk does that. So he has periods where he focuses on Skills and then the periods focus on streetlifting. I never focus on skills, but I do, may do some maintenance work. I may hold some front levers after training if I want to. If I don't want to, I, w- I won't do it. But if I was to combine skills and street lifting, I would like, do separate periods like eight to 12 weeks street lifting and six to eight weeks for skills and combine them and not focus on both in a single period.
0: Very mature response, Matt. Everyone should take that away because I can say the reason why people try and do both and don't get anywhere is social media. You look on the internet, people are doing skills and then you see other people doing insane street lifting stuff and your temptation is to want to do both. But you've heard it from the professional. You've got to focus on one thing at a time because if you don't, you're just going to be average or less than average or just not improve
1: well you're going to be average if you don't really listen to smart people talking and try to do all the things at once <laughs> this is how it works actually yep. and also you, for- you forgot to mention that they also watch a lot of bodybuilding and they try to also implement short rest times and 8 to 12 reps in their strength training
0: what would you say is the best way matt to improve at one arm pulling
1: i also have a personal approach for this and i have a tutorial on youtube you can check it out in short people recommend a lot of like different exercises you can find a lot of such videos on youtube like do these exercises to one arm pull up and that doesn't really work what i will advise is putting your assistant rope or rubber band under your hand actually so that it's centered around your body actually looks and feels like a one arm pull up
0: so you anchor the assistance under the working hand as opposed to when people do assisted pull-ups they put the band where they're the other arm would be on two arm pull-ups.
1: Exactly, exactly. Actually I saw you promoting like a pulley system where you attach some weights to your assistant rope and pull, pull it over the pull-up bar.
0: I never saw your approach before you posted that tutorial and it makes so much sense because anytime we can make a movement replicate exactly what we're trying to go for, that's a good exercise. So I'd argue that your method of having the assistance under the working side is a much more optimal approach than the one that I taught on the internet with the pulley system. The mechanics yes. of it better suit the one-arm pull-up. But the only downside, like like we were just going to say, is it's hard to measure how much assistance the band is other than the color. But I guess with the pulley system, you've got the weight.
1: Yes, but you can kind of measure it like by using your senses. So I guess grabbing lower can help and using a lighter rubber band can help too. So you can kind of scale it, but you won't have the number. And with your system, you have numbers. So I guess if we kind of manage to combine both approaches, then we'll have the perfect one. And also uh, one thing that usually no one says in their tutorials, but all of the people that actually can want to pull up have used that is attempts. Of course, attempts. Attempting your one or pull Of course, you have to understand that attempts are extremely taxing. You have to be perfectly warmed up for this. You have to be ready. And you have to actually have the level of physical preparation that allows you to use attempts and get benefits from them. So, like, if you can barely bend your arm like this, Attempts are not for you. You have to first build up the strength with assisted exercises. And then when you can, like, at least hold a 90-degree static or pull, like, from here to here, like, do half range of motion one-arm pull-ups, then, yes, attempts can be a great way to achieve your first rep. But before that, I would say that it's too early, and you have to either build up your basics with weighted one-arm pull-ups And also supplement yourself with assisted stuff. Like just going straight up into the attempts is asking for injury.
0: Of course. And I understand that it's not black and white in terms of one approach versus the other. But just say we've got someone who wants to achieve a one-arm pull-up and they're pretty good at bodyweight pull-ups. They've got your base as you recommended at the start of the podcast. They can do 12 reps. Should they start straight away on assisted pulls to try and get the one arm pull up or should they build a two arm level of strength with weighted pulls and then transition what do you believe is the best should you do one at a time and then transition or what would you recommend
1: I would recommend definitely building up the weighted foundation because aside from doing one arm pull up work weighted just provides so much more it's also the base for your front lever For your other skills, for your planche, for like for everything you do in calisthenics. So build up your weighted foundation. It's extremely important and it will will always reward you afterwards. Like you will never regret having a better foundation in weighted. And even if you start like with 12 pull ups and you start doing your assisted stuff, it will take you so much longer to achieve your first one on pull up than starting actually starting weighted building up and then with your foundation trying to learn one arm pull ups it actually might take you less time to achieve a one arm pull up if you start weighted.
0: i agree with you that's the same approach that i teach people too you've got to you've got to build the pure absolute strength so how much you can lift your own body weight plus additional load to just improve all of those prime pulling muscle groups like your your lats, all your other shoulder extensors, as you said. And it's also going to be safer too. You can't just go from two arms to one arm assisted training and be sweet because most people that I see don't have the patience. So if they've gone from body weight to assisted one arm, it's just a recipe for golfer's elbow. So at least if they take your approach of weighted calisthenics first on two arms, they build a foundation of strength. They build the tissue resilience. So they can actually get onto the one arm stuff, not get injured, but as you said, also make progress faster.
1: And always remember that you don't start building a house with the roof. You start with the foundation.
0: Real talk, guys. Don't skip the basics. Matt, with the topic of training to failure, there's people that say that it has value for strength. What are your thoughts on this, and is there a time and place for training to failure?
1: Well, first we have to define failure. So either it's doing an RPE 10 set, which actually has all the reps successful. I don't count it as failure, although it's like up to failure training, but you don't actually hit failure, and it can be good. And if we mean like training to actual physical failure when you are failing a rep, that's usually best to avoid. Because actually this failed rep, it doesn't give you anything good and it can actually break down your nervous system. Like your movement pattern can break down a little. And also an important factor in is that your like self-confidence, your mental approach can really suffer from failing reps. So I would recommend avoid that. So RPE 10 sets can be useful, although really because they're taxing and like, Going beyond p 10 to actually fa- failing a rep is nothing
0: good. Great answer because it's a, it's a high risk, low reward type of situation because you're getting more fatigue, your technique's breaking down, so you're building bad motor patterns as well. And it's just accumulating unnecessary stress on your body because it's all about the, the totality of your training. Whereas I think people get caught up in, oh, I've got to have one good session.
1: And there is also one good theory about, have you heard about stimulating reps or like in a set, there are around five productive repetitions that start with RPE5 and end with RP 10 And there are different ways to accumulate these reps. And either you can do a single set to RP 10 and you will accumulate like five of, of useful repetitions, or you can do like three sets at RP 8 and accumulate around nine reps, so Even if you do less sets to failure, like even if you do more sets to less RPE, you can still accumulate more useful reps. And even if you do RPE 10 sets, it's usually like you burn out quite fast. You cannot do a lot of them. Your performance drops. And if you do like lower RPE sets at like eight, you can keep your performance more consistent and your form better. And your fatigue less while still accumulating these useful reps.
0: Now, Matt, in terms of getting to a high level of physical performance, a big part of that is staying healthy. How do you go about yes. minimizing your chance of injury and avoiding injury?
1: Managing fatigue, of course, it's the most important thing. Managing your workload and training and paying attention to sleep and overall recovery of the body and uh, also general wellness of your life not being stressed and uh, nutrition like people ask me a lot about nutrition I don't really count calories or macros or I just eat whatever is comfortable for me but the way that I eat is actually quite healthy because I prefer whole foods minimally processed and I usually gain a lot of like, I, I get enough macros, like, even without counting them. I get enough calories, I get enough macros. So that's not a problem.
0: What is the optimal body composition for weighted calisthenics? Because if you're too light, then it's going to be very difficult to lift heavy loads. But if, you're, if your body weight is too heavy, doesn't it make it difficult to also pull your body weight?
1: It does. Of course it does. I think that the best body weight you can have for weighted calisthenics performance is the maximum lean muscle mass you can get. So I guess don't go into extremes like no one needs 5% body fat for performance, but I guess staying around 10 to 12% body fat while having the most muscle mass would be the optimal answer. You will find that most of the athletes who set records who have the best stats in the world are usually between 90 and 100 kilos.
0: What height category would be those weight ranges, Matt?
1: Uh, usually around 180 centimeters or six feet.
0: What are your thoughts on self-coaching versus hiring someone to take care of your training? Because I know you've got experience with both.
1: It really depends on the person, on their temper, on their personality. But for a lot of people, coaching may definitely help because it really takes a lot of balls to find all the information yourself. I know that because I went through this. I searched for so much And I found it really hard to find useful information on the internet because it's usually filled with bodybuilding crap. Like this is where all these rests of two minutes between strength sets come from. Usually a lot of people confuse strength building with muscle building. And this confusion creates a lot of uncertainties in the information presented on the internet. But if you learn to filter the information and you learn to find what you need, then self-coaching will not only make you stronger, it will make you better at research, better at filtering your information general in life. But if you want to save time, if you don't want to go into this trial and error by yourself, you can hire a coach and it will definitely work better for novices to get their basics down without trying to find them yourself in the world full of shit.
0: Exactly, man. It saves you so much time and also... We can often be our own worst enemy in training because if you have an outside pair of eyes, it takes the emotion out of it. If you're not progressing, they can be like, you've just got to be a bit more patient. It's been working. We're just having a bit of a stall. We've got to just stay the course. Whereas I think when people train themselves, they start, as you said, reading too much stuff on the internet. They think that the basics aren't working. They're going to add all these extra exercises or train more days. So- if people find that they're not getting the results they want or are frustrated, I'm, I'm with you, Matt. I'd recommend getting outside help.
1: Coaching really works for advanced athletes too, but in a more particular way because I signed up for coaching with Dmitry Golovinsky, like in four months I was with him, and then I signed off. And uh, for an advanced athlete, uh, like a period of coaching like I had can – like you can dive into a someone else's perspective really well when you take up their coaching. And this was a great experience for me personally because uh, I really saw his method. And his method is nothing like I've seen anywhere else. And that's why I signed up in the first place to know how he programs, to know what he thinks about that. And all if you are advanced and if you want to get like an insight into someone else's programming, then there is no better thing than signing up for their coach.
0: When you are training, Matt, do you follow the program to the T, as in you do everything, all the sets, all the reps, all the weights exactly as written for every single week, or do you allow yourself some auto-regulation?
1: Well, usually my programs include auto regulation, but maybe not to a degree like some people have, like with working up to a top set and basing that top set exactly on how you feel that day. No, I have like something pre-planned, but I can alter it a little bit. And back in the day when I was a little bit younger and the progress was easier, I usually stuck to the program a little bit more harshly, like following it to the T as you said but right now i'm a little bit more flexible with myself
0: when you are training what do you track other than sets reps weights do you track your um, rpe do you use reps in reserve what have you found to be effective
1: mostly the technique the speed and the feeling of lightness this is what i'm going for rpe i usually train at higher pe's but this is meant this is a mental thing because like i don't know if that happens to other people but if i like prepare myself mentally for a set even if it's a light one it usually feels like a 10
0: yeah so this helps you to reflect on your progress over the weeks how you respond and then you can decide how to manage for the future
1: the best way to track your rep speed is during warm-ups how the warm-ups feel especially the heavy ones because like when you go up to 100 and 125 kilos you can really like the work which is not max which is still warm-up but it's still quite significant so you can really feel how you're feeling that day, how the reps are going, acceleration, speed, smoothness, especially smoothness on the dips it matters a lot. When if you're, if you're shaking, if you're unstable, it's usually the sign of neural fatigue.
0: What is your favorite form of periodization?
1: Linear, <laughs> because it's the fastest. <laughs> if I had to choose, like I would probably do linear periodization all my life just to get the easy game.
0: <laughs> man, straight facts. I think there's too much complexity with programming online, and especially people that are following it, that are beginners, intermediates, and even like early advanced. It's just, keep it simple, man. Linear, I agree.
1: It's favorite, but usually the reality is that you have to do block so.
0: But I think it's just why we like linear is because it's easy to understand. If you start doing all this undulation and stuff, you don't know if you're actually progressing, whereas linear is quite quite clear if you're making gains or not. I want to ask you a controversial question in closing, and feel free to answer this however you please. What are your thoughts on steroids? And is it something that you would consider in the future?
1: Well, steroids are definitely a good tool for people to achieve results. And I know people, like there is at least one person who uses steroids in our streetlifting world. His name is Andrei Smaev, you probably know him. This is the crazy guy from Russia who did a 160 kilo chin-up unofficially. And uh, I know he's on steroids. He has said that multiple times in his social media. I am natural. Let's get that out of the way. Many people don't believe that, but I am. And uh, I will definitely consider taking something in the future years, but I still think that I'm not ready for this. Like, when you use something, enhancing your performance, you first have to always make sure that your like natural performance peak has already been reached, and you're not wasting your potential. It's like having uh, overdrive on your jet plane. It doesn't make any sense to use overdrive if you are not in a dangerous situation in a jet, or like if you're not competing in a strength sport professionally with high stakes, then it doesn't make sense to use anything. If you're not going for world records, it doesn't make sense to use anything. If you just want to look good, you are better off staying natural. But if you want to push the human limit, then at some point there may be reason to take them. I still I still don't think that I'm ready. I still have more in me.
0: Firstly, Matt, I appreciate your honesty in your approach. And I think that's a very sensible decision that you're making firstly, because you feel that you've got more to gain. You haven't hit your, your personal genetic limit. So it's a great idea for you to continue to absolutely push your natural limit. And I think the second really exciting thing is you're the type of person who knows so much about training And I know that if you decide to go down that path, you're going to do your research, you're going to be monitored correctly, you're not going to use stupid dosages. And what's awesome about it is you're just going to tell the truth. You're just going to be like, okay, guys, I achieved this naturally. Now I'm doing this. And I think it's going to be awesome for people to see if that's something you decide to do, what you can achieve. Because if you've done what you've done already with just what you were born with, good nutrition, good recovery, consistent training, man, I can't wait to see the kind of crazy stuff you'll do in the future, because a lot of people take that path of steroids before their genetic limit. They do it when they don't understand how to train. And if they don't understand how to train correctly and they take steroids, then their rate of progress is going to be so quick, that their awareness of what their body responds to isn't up to speed. And that's where you see people tearing pecs. That's where you see people tearing biceps. That's what limits people from getting really strong, both naturally and also when they take enhancement. I would like to think with the, the dosages, you'll be patient. So sky's the limit, man.
1: Yes. And uh, I want to say two things. First, that even if I start using steroids, I will probably hire a professional medician. To control that for myself because I know that it's a huge field that requires a lot of research before starting off and it will probably easier for me to hire someone even if I go on a cycle it will probably be a one-off thing to just test where my limits are because I don't want to go into this endless circle of cycling testosterone like I don't want to get addicted to this I want to just hop in and then use it for some time to get maximum results and then hop off back again. Because I don't think that it promotes the quality of life that they want later.
0: Respect, man. And I really like the fact that you were very clear on the reason why you're taking it and why people shouldn't. If someone just wants to look good or get some decent strength, the amount of potential that you can do without pharmaceuticals is crazy. Just look at what maths achieved and other people around the world unless you're competing at the top top level there's literally no point for the health side effects etc
1: let's make it clear again i'm natural i'm clean i have never used anything in my life and uh, even like i get so much hate for like steroid accusations especially in russia like every single person thinks that i'm on peds and it's easier it's almost easier for me that to say that yes i am And I will get much less hate if I do, but I have to make it clear and I have to be honest.
0: Because on the one hand, it's a massive compliment because they're saying that surely you can't achieve what you did without assistance. But on the other hand, if you don't defend it, then they probably think you're lying, even though you aren't.
1: Yes. And this also, it can be taken as a compliment, but it also is kind of devaluing your... Achievements, because look at smy for example. Look, look at his chin up. This is what possible on steroids. And even if people think that what I achieved is on steroids, then and they cannot even imagine what will happen if I start using it actually now.
0: If you could go back in time and give some advice to your younger self, what would you say?
1: Study strength programming better. Understand it better. Apply it better. Read books be patient. I didn't really make any serious mistakes and my progress would, was great. So I would not say that I w- wouldn't change anything because it could be faster at times. I could have avoided some stupid plateaus and it's it would have been better if I studied more. So this really is about studying. It's about, about getting information. It's about training your brain as well as your body. So that would be the advice that I would give to my younger self.
0: Awesome. We'll end it there, Matt. It was an absolute. Pleasure chatting with you, man.
1: Thanks for the interview, man. It was great.
0: FitnessFAQs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.